It may seem odd to say it, but Winnipeg is a relatively new city. Our oldest building, created by descendants of European settlers, is what's now the St. Boniface Museum, originally constructed as a convent by the Grey Nuns in St. Boniface beginning in 1846. Which is your favorite heritage building in Winnipeg? The stated purpose of the nonprofit group Heritage Winnipeg is, as they put it, we advocate for the conservation of worthwhile historic buildings threatened by demolition or neglect. Today on Prairie Design Lab, we explore what that means in practice. Last night, I tried to count all the historical building resources that have been designated by the city of Winnipeg, but that list was considerably longer than I expected. 59 single-spaced pages, too many to count. Today, we'll narrow that list by looking at it through the lens of Heritage Winnipeg's 35th Annual Preservation Awards in 2020. Architect Rena Ricci is a heritage planner with the city of Winnipeg. My two other guests are both winners in the 2020 awards. They are architects Dean Severson of Unit 7 Architecture and Peter Sampson of Public City Architecture. Let me begin by offering my congratulations to you, Peter Sampson, and to yeah. Dean Severson. Well done. Now, I want to talk with yeah. you two more deeply in a moment, but first, I'd like to ask Rena, what makes a building worth conserving? So when we look to designate a heritage building, we're looking at the heritage values that the building embodies. Um, and so heritage values means the architectural and historical significance of the building. So we're looking at its date of construction. A, a resource has to be at least 40 years old. We're looking at sort of how it represents the story of development in the city or the neighborhood that it's located in, its original occupants or owners, the architectural design or style of the building, and also the integrity of the historical resource. How intact is it? You're a heritage planner with the city of Winnipeg. What's your relationship or your department's relationship with Heritage Winnipeg? So Heritage Winnipeg is an advocacy group and they advocate for heritage conservation um, with the city. The city isn't an advocacy group. What we do is we play a public service role. So we administer various bylaws that are related to heritage um, and we provide advice to senior management. So we do work with Heritage Winnipeg at times um, concerning heritage buildings. Um, we provide some funding to Heritage Winnipeg for their advocacy and educational work throughout the city. Who makes the decision over which buildings to conserve? This is a little bit of a complicated question, but I'll try to give you a <laughs> brief response to that. So in the past, buildings were sort of added to a list called the inventory, and they were added administratively, and that protected the buildings from demolition. Um, but sometimes owners didn't know that. So uh, in order to provide clarity, we developed a new bylaw. And so now only owners or the director has the authority, the director of the planning department has the authority to nominate buildings for designation. So once these buildings are nominated, city council makes the final decision on whether or not they should be designated. And owners have a say in that. 
And now to the award winners. Dean Severson, what made you want to get involved with the conservation of the building for which you won the Commercial Conservation Award of Excellence, the Fortune Block on Main Street? Terry, well, this was a project that was brought to us from a longstanding client. So a client that we worked with over the years on many different types of projects, both residential, commercial, and for our client, this was a revenue property that he wanted to um, renovate and wanted to renovate in a historically accurate manner. So the project just came to us. And Peter Sampson, what made you want to get involved on the project for which you won the Institutional Conservation Award of Excellence, the St. John's Library on Salter Street? The St. John's Library, it's a Carnegie uh, Library, the library Carnegie, uh, were both put out by the city of Winnipeg for a competitive bid back in 2014. And so, um, well, we were fortunate enough to have won that competitive bid. The reason we're interested in competing for something like that has to do with our mandate, I guess, as, a, as an architecture practice focused on the public realm in particular, in that the library is, you know, a fundamental piece of social infrastructure. And they are not only valuable assets as old buildings, they're valuable institutions as programs uh, that help to not just define um, where we've been as a culture, but really where we're going. And they do that at both the community level, but they do that at the level of connecting us to the, to the world. Libraries, uh, I think Dean would agree, and so would mm-hmm. that libraries and schools are kind of these dream projects where we have to, you know, focus on the dream of architecture and the future of culture and uh, use architecture as a way of um, inviting new conversations for where, where a culture wants to go. Dean, what state was the fortune block in when you first saw it? I have to take it back a notch because what we now refer to the fortune block, when we started on the project was actually two separate buildings, although one was technically an annex of the other. The two halves of the building, one was built 1873 and 1875. The original fortune block was built, is that correct, Rina? I think it was 1873 and five, something like that. Anyways, half of it was built two years later. And then over the years, Terry, the building will originally functioned as one building, but at a time in its history was divided formally into two different or separate titles, two different uh, building titles. So when my client bought it, we had to um, reconsolidate. He had to buy both the buildings and then um, reconsolidate them under one title. So that was the first part of the project. Why that is important is because one of the two halves was in significantly better shape than the other. One was in reasonable shape given their age and had been used over its 100-year lifespan largely in the same way that it was designed in the late 1880s or 1870s. But the other half had over the years been subject to a number of, you know, ramshackle renovations and cutting through structure and was in and lived most of its life as a rooming house. The rooming house side, it was a rabbit warren of spaces 
And so the first order of business was to pull all the stuff out of it in order to properly assess the physical condition of the building. That took some time unto itself. And then after that point, we worked with Rena and the city of Winnipeg to get a sense of what the city would accept in terms of how we were going to go about a renovation strategy, right? Because although both sides were listed buildings, as I say, one side, one half was in physically uh, much better condition than the other. So we had to come to an arrangement and an agreement with the city of Winnipeg that although they were both listed buildings, that we needed some tolerance with respect to what was reasonably and financially feasible to do, particularly on the one side that was in rougher condition. That's where we started. My client in this case, and and I think it'll be interesting because Peter can speak to the whole notion of historic preservation and working with historic buildings because he has done a, more modern projects on historical buildings where the mandate that I had from my client was that he was very specific and very determined to um, renovate the buildings and to return them to almost their original condition. That was the, the wish of my client. And so that's, it was pretty easy. We didn't have to spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the manner in which we may alter or um, consider renovating the buildings. It was very clear. He wanted them to be returned to as closely as possible their original condition. Peter, in what state was the St. John's Library when you took on that project? Uh, the word I could describe it uh, is musty. <laughs> you know, used, overused, band-aid maintenance, hanging on by a thread, but, you know, looked after enough to keep it going. Budget for the project was established in uh, 2011 and 12. Uh, we inherited the project, really got going in 2015, uh, using 2011 dollars. Uh, by the time we got to tender, which is when we, you know, when we commit to uh, the contractor to build, uh, it was 2018, and we were still working with 2011 dollars. In that time, the uh, scope of work had to be redefined a few times, uh, not because it was over budget, but because uh, 2011 dollars buy a lot more in 2011 than they do in 2018, which is one of the challenges with, with public facilities. And it's, it's not an impossible one, it's not insurmountable, but it requires a, you know, quite a bit of creativity on our part. We, we were fortunate enough to be able to work with the city. You know, these are dream clients in the sense that they're knowledgeable. They know their program very well and they know their asset very well. Um, and so it becomes a real point of collaborative engagement for architects to be able to work with expert clients and really kind of boil down what is the priority for this renovation. It started out as not simply a, a heritage renovation, but how do we bring this building up to code? Contrary to what Dean went through, our program was how to modernize a heritage facility to today's standards and today's codes, which is ironic because at the same time we were doing a house for a, a young couple who uh, wanted us to actually design a brand new old house. So <laughs> we get all kinds of clients as, as architects. But in, in this case, um, we managed to work the budget in such a way that rather than build an addition for an elevator, we would work that elevator into a lift 
and into the existing program at the existing entry. And we would try to spend the money on modernizing the idea of a reading room. So that was how that project began. And then what we ended up doing for St. John's was incorporating the addition and the inclusion of a lift into the new addition and the reading room at the south to turn the entrance away from the side suite and bring the new statement and the new facade and the new elevation of St. John's to the south of the building, uh, where it might have had more neighborhood relationship than what the original Carnegie Library had, which had a more kind of, you know, dropped from the sky center plan, uh, you know, 19... 15 building design that was very sort of Georgian in its arrangement and, and was positioned on the main commercial street. We wanted to use the architectural refund as a way to not just change the entrance, but actually make a new relationship to the neighborhood and then leave the original facade alone. So we closed off those doors and we moved the entry to the other side. And Cornish, we did, we did the opposite in the sense that we built a new reading room exclusively, same library footprint. So we were doing two heritage libraries at the same time. The Cornish library just happens to be a lot slower uh, in structure growth. But, and that was because it had much more wear in the building. St. John's was actually in relatively good structural condition and enough abatement uh, for things like expenses of taking place earlier in its life than it had in Cornish. So we actually got a slightly better product and could get going sooner. Uh, Rena, what role did you play in both of these projects and the, the, all the decisions that needed to be made? One of my roles is to um, administer heritage permits and the historical resources bylaws. So when a client or an owner or an architect is applying for a permit for work to a listed historical resource, they also need to apply for a heritage permit. So I administer that process. And what that means is that I, along with my colleagues, will review the design drawings to ensure that they're in compliance with our heritage standards. And we use a national guideline document called the um, Standards and Guidelines for the Historic Places in Canada as our guideline to evaluate projects for historical resources. So we're looking for work to be in compliance with that. Um, so once work is, you know, what we'll do is we'll review drawings, um, we'll point out any necessary sort of revisions that are required in order to align the project uh, with the standards and guidelines. We'll have some conversations with applicants. And then once the drawings are up to standard, we'll issue the heritage permit. And that gives the, the applicant the, then they are entitled to undertake that work. What amount of say do you have in the aesthetics of a conservation project? Well, aesthetics can be quite a subjective thing. Um, what we're looking for is we evaluate projects based on the standards and guidelines. So there are certain things, for instance, when somebody's designing an addition to a heritage building, we're looking for that addition to be visually and physically compatible with the heritage building and subordinate to it. So we don't want it to really be the main focus of attention and draw attention away from the heritage building. We want things to touch lightly onto the heritage building and to be a minimal intervention. So those are the sorts of things that we're looking for. And we're also looking for high quality restoration work. So work that actually prolongs the lifespan of the building. 
When it comes to aesthetics, we kind of leave that up to the designer to take care of. And again, I think that's a little bit subjective. Personally, I'm always looking for a building, a new addition to be um, of its time. You know, fake old to me doesn't seem like an appropriate solution for an addition to a heritage building because then you've got um, sort of a new addition that looks old and it's not very distinguishable from the heritage building and some confusion can be created because of that. Um, so my personal aesthetic preference is always to have buildings be of their time and modern in appearance if they're new. I would agree with that uh, comment and I think generally what we find with modern budgets is our dollars in construction have to go a lot further than they used to. So uh, we can't replicate the craft that necessarily went into an old building, whether it's a restoration or a renovation of, a, of an old heritage asset. So generally what we're looking to do is make sure that modern contemporary technologies are used that have a quality of craft to them, but don't necessarily mimic uh, the old. So it's, it's matching quality with contemporary quality as opposed to matching old form in, in new materials, which is almost always a failure unless you have got a good budget to do really well. And Dean, I wonder, you, you just said, yeah, does that mean that in the work that you did on the Fortune Block, that you actually had a budget that allowed you to meet the standards that were set by the client? That's exactly right, because like both Reen and Peter, my personal aesthetic as a designer, I totally agree with both of them in the sense that for the most part, when we're dealing with old buildings, we're trying to be sensitive to the old building, but at the same time, the work that we're doing with them or to them is of the uh, of our time as well, right? So it, it's a sensitive, complementary design as opposed to trying to do what uh, was done 100 years ago. And you're absolutely right. I think in my case, I had a client who specifically wanted to try or to recreate how the buildings originally were and had the, the budget to do so. And like Peter has said, that's extremely rare. For the most part, I think when people try in contemporary times to recreate old buildings or old building aesthetic, that for the most part, it ends up being a miserable pastiche of work because we don't have the budgets. The amount of detail that is typically found on old, even modest structures, it's, it's economically and in many instances, physically not viable to do so. So, you know, I would agree. In this case, like I say, my situation was different because I did have a client who who uh, was willing to spend considerable amount of money on recreating an old building. So, but, you know, that situation is rarer than common. I think it also depends on the, the conservation approach and, you know, Dean and Peter both refer to, well, what is their mandate? What was the sort of goal of the project? And in Dean's case, it really was a restoration project where, you know, the client was recreating or had a desire to recreate these missing elements of the building and in particular the cornice, which I think, mm -hmm. you know, turned out really fantastically and same with those storefronts. And so the conservation approach in that case was to do a restoration job 
And with the St. John's Library, Peter found a way to continue the use of the library at that building, but more space was required for accessibility purposes. So because they needed new space and a new addition was required, it seemed very reasonable for that addition to be modern. So where do modern features, Dean, turn up in the Fortune Block? The building is thrillingly authentic to my eye from the outside. It's an interesting question, Terry, because, of course, when you're doing historical restoration or renovations to a building, a building like I was working on for that's 100 years old, we're not always starting from the position that we're taking it back to when it was constructed, because in many instances, a building's finest hours wasn't necessarily when it was first constructed. Sometimes older buildings that are, are in this case, 100 years old, may have undergone three or four significant programmatic and building changes over the course of their life. And, and it's not always the case that their best period was when they were initially constructed. As designers or architects, when we're looking at restoration, there is some, not necessarily subjective, but we're making conscious decisions as to what point in time in a building's history or life that we're trying to return them to. Like, for instance, my building, the Fortune building, it was pre-electricity. So we're certainly not trying to recreate a building that has no artificial light in it. So that's one thing, right? So we're making a lot of assessments and decisions along the way. But in the case of the Fortune building, what we did do some of the modern things, well, we added an elevator. Because the Fortune building, if you look at the Fortune building, it's not uncommon for buildings of its time where all the storefronts or all the main floor spaces are directly accessible from the street. In the case of the Fortune building, it had offices on the upper two floors. As with other buildings of the time, you would enter off the main street and go directly up to the second floor. So the primary lobby, per se, in a building of that era was actually not on the main floor. It would be on the second floor because all the main floor spaces were directly accessible from the street. So we had to add an elevator and we had to add a lobby, but that isn't seen from the street so that we didn't compromise all the, as Rena said, all the storefronts on the, on the main floor. So we had an elevator, um, artificial light. We added a rear second stair escape because, as Peter said, in many instances, we're dealing with code issues. All these old buildings aren't compliant in terms of exiting requirements and all that kind of thing. So, you know, we have to work with the city of Winnipeg as specific guidelines in place, which deal specifically with issues related to old buildings and how we can best bring them up to current contemporary building code without compromising the spirit of the old building. Peter, what efforts did you go to to try to conserve the unique features of the St. John's Library? What really came to matter when you looked in the old part of the building and said, this is valuable, let's do a good job at conserving this? The design strategy for us was to bring a contemporary language to the south side that could actually highlight the heritage building. So we created glass box, not that it was just set off from the building, but it was actually transparent enough to behave a bit like a vitrine or a showcase so that the elements of the original facade could be seen through the more contemporary edition. In the composition of that 
showcase um, between like vessel that we put on the south of the building. We respected all the proportional volumes of the original building. You know, the glass finds the alignment of the, of the cornice or the frieze. It knows the proportions of the windows on the main buildings and we drag those lines around. When we put doors into the original Carnegie Library from the new edition, we did them at the windows. So we just thought cut away the, uh, the timbal and the brick below it and we went right through the width of the window. So it was respecting all of those pieces that existed even the route to the bathroom respects the edge of the existing building. So when you're standing inside the vitrine, you're in contact with the brick and you're in contact with the, the tactile qualities of the building, which I think is one of the opportunities of working with old buildings where you actually get to rub against it and feel it as opposed to just look at it. And then in the, in the composition of the uh, glass box, you know, we're taking some of the variables away from us as contemporary designers by just saying, well, what, were the, what rules were set in place when we read the original Carnegie Library, let's translate those rules to today. It takes the kind of, just the variable way of coming up with a whole set of new rules by just following the proportions around and kind of translating them into a more contemporary language. Dean, I understand that in the renovation and the restoration of the fortune block, you found some unusual things, including a gigantic tree trunk. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that um, was certainly common to the time. Old buildings weren't built with the same degree as of standardized materials and standardized construction processes that we use today. In our case, on the very public storefront side, when we started doing our selective demolition to bolster the structure, we did find not a tree trunk, an entire tree, a relatively straight tree, about 14 inches in diameter that was a primary structural component for one of our pieces. Rena, final question to you. What sense of satisfaction does this work, the work that you do, bring to you? The reason I love Winnipeg so much is because it's sort of a collection of these old buildings and I get to be a part of sort of its curation, I guess, and to help protect the building so that mm -hmm. they continue the legacy of Winnipeg. So that to me, plus working with architects, and that's really my background and my passion, um, I couldn't ask for a better mix of a job. So I'm very grateful for mm -hmm. having it. In the introduction, Peter, I mentioned the, the Grey Nuns building on Taché. Uh, you weren't around at the construction of the building, but you had a little bit of a role in helping to get it restored, right? I did, yeah. That was uh, back in 2006. Uh, it was really, uh, it was more along the lines of the type of work that um, Dean is talking about at the Fortress Building, where that was a restoration and uh, restoration of rod and wood and uh, bringing it paint colors up to date. But that's a marvelous piece of Manitoba history, that building. It does stand as one of the uh, oldest log cabins of its type. And just on the spot here, forgetting which species of wood it is, I think it is the country's oldest pine or cedar or oak. Long time, and I'm just on the spot here, not remembering which it is, but uh, it's, a, it's an important piece of Canadian history that just sits here on our waterfront that I don't think very many people know about. Sorry about that muddy Zoom quality. Doesn't that happen far too often? Darn COVID. Peter Sampson is the Principal Architect of Public City Architecture of Winnipeg in Toronto. 
Dean Severson is the principal architect of Unit 7 Architecture of Winnipeg. Architect Rena Ricci is a heritage planner with the city of Winnipeg. Both Severson and Sampson were winners in Heritage Winnipeg's 35th Annual Preservation Awards in 2020. Perry Design Lab comes to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. Our podcast builds on all that's been accomplished by the faculty and the graduates of the first architecture faculty in Western Canada, founded 102 years ago. I guess that makes U of M's faculty a heritage institution in itself. Special thanks to Jason Chan and Jason Shields of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. Thanks to you for listening. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you're in Winnipeg, you can catch us each Wednesday morning at 11.30 a.m. on UMFM Radio 101.5 FM. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. <laughs>